The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So who of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And we're live. It is it's Friday, January 21st, 5.04 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, um, and that is especially true today. Uh, not because Anita Christie-Kumar is here with us, which is going to be an amazing discussion, but we will be sticking around after um, the show ends on YouTube to kind of talk about the loss of Chris Ardress, our Greek chorus member who passed away this weekend, um, and to kind of let everyone kind of just chat about it a little bit. Um, and then, uh, but today and for this discussion, we have like a really interesting conversation um, with one of my favorite former colleagues. And uh, I mean, I guess I don't have that many former colleagues have been doing this for like three years. So, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> but, um, but Anita Krishnukumar is a professor of law at Georgetown, my alma mater. Um, and she was before that, she was at St. John's Law School with me. Um, and she is an expert in statutory interpretation and empirics. And she wrote an excellent, excellent op-ed um, on Rakesan's, um election law blog following Gorsuch's opinion in the OSHA decision. And so we were going to talk about that today. But Anita, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to see you. Nice to see everyone. So nice to see you. So do we want to get started with just kind of what exactly was it? Like, I know that you're not a labor lawyer and OSHA is a labor, the OSHA case was a labor law case. Um, but what was kind of at stake in that case exactly? And I mean, I think that this kind of ties into kind of in part why Gorsuch came out the way he did in his decision. Yeah, so I mean, I think of it as really like an ad law and a statutory interpretation and an employment law case, right? So um, what's at stake is can the agency do what it did, and particularly here under a provision of the statute that allows the agency to take emergency action. So typically when OSHA uh, promulgates regulations, it goes through the notice and comment process, but that takes a while and COVID is this imminent, urgent problem. So uh, OSHA promulgated the regulation at issue through, it was not really through the notice and comment process, through the um, emergency provision of the statute. And so what the court was deciding, and, and actually the way it came before the court is that the um, Fifth Circuit had stayed that rule, right, that emergency rule, and then the Sixth Circuit had lifted the stay, and, and the Supreme Court went back and struck and reimposed the stay. So that's sort of the posture, but it's, you know, they really did basically reach the merits in, in deciding to, to reimpose this day. And just to be clear, the emergency rule was related to COVID. And I think it, and it was, I think it was an or, it was a, you have, if you have over a hundred employees, you have to have, there's a, it has to be a vaccine mandate or you have to test negative once a week, right? Once that week, was yes. like the, okay, yeah. great. Um, so, and if you want, so what's your, 
So what's your beef with Gorsuch? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, but there's multiple. He seems like rivals. such a nice guy with like there's that whole. Cool. <laughs> I have a beef with him and the procurium opinion. Um, and, and there's multiple beefs. I mean, from if I put my ad law hat on, I, I sometimes teach administrative law, which I'm teaching now. Um, then there's lots of beefs. What I wrote about in the blog post was a statutory interpretation beef. Um, so the, I mentioned the emergency provision. I'm just going to read you that provision of the statute. So the, the provision authorizes OSHA to issue emergency regulations if it makes a determination, A, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and B, that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. So it's pursuant to that provision that OSHA issued this mandate that if you have more than, for employers of more than 100 employees, you must impose a vaccine or test requirement. And that can only last for like six months because it's an emergency provision, right? So um, that's what the court struck down. And in this opinion, you would think, I just quoted you some uh, lengthy statutory text, right? You would think that there would be some discussion of the text itself, especially from this court, which has moved so far in a textualist decision, and particularly from Justice Gorsuch, um, who has sort of prided himself on being a textualist. Um, and yet there's no textual analysis in the procurium or the, or the uh, concurring opinion by Justice Gorsuch. What they rely on instead, instead is basically a bunch of substantive canons um, and and sort of lurking in the background, the non-delegation doctrine, which this court seems pretty primed to revive. So what they say is this is this is a rule that OSHA has issued that is going to have such vast political and economic significance affecting 84 million or uh, people. And so given that, that's just too sweeping of a regulation. And we don't presume that Congress gives an agency the power to make that kind of sweeping regulation unless the statute clearly says so. So they impose sort of a super strong clear statement that unless there's targeted language in the statute, that basically the statute would have to say, and this includes a vaccine or test mandate. Right, in order for it to meet that test, which, you know, Congress, the t statutes are never going to meet that test because Congress doesn't say, and this includes, you can regulate, you know, asbestos and you can regulate benzene and you can regulate tractor injuries, right? It doesn't say that. It, it speaks more broadly. So if you're going to require that level of um, specificity after the fact, right, ex post, the statute was passed in 1970, um, then that's going to kill the statute, right? So it's a very substantive policy-based approach saying, given the scope of the regulation that what OCHA is trying to achieve, that's just too much. We presume Congress doesn't delegate that kind of authority to the agency. Um, it's something that scholars have labeled the major questions doctrine, where the court can basically say the regulatory question at issue is so big that we don't presume the agency has that authority unless Congress tells us clearly otherwise. Right? And they sort of backpedal that into the non-delegation doctrine, saying if the statute act is the end of the opinion, right? If they, if uh, Gorsuch's opinion, if Congress did give OSHA the power to do this, that would be unconstitutional. Okay, so I have like a million questions. Yeah, about this, go. <laughs> and they're and they're intertwined with one another, so I'm going to try to disaggregate them. First of all, it seems to me that what Gorsuch does here is a bit of a piece with Scalia's signing on to the Brown and Williamson majority a number of years ago, where. I forget the exact language of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, but it's something like products that are designed, intended to affect the structure and yes, function yes, of the yes. human Good body. Yes, yes, yes. Good memory, right? yeah. 
and struck uh, intended to affect the structure and function of the human body clearly describes cigarettes and tobacco yes. products and yet uh i believe it was a sandra day o'connor opinion yes. but scalia the textualist icon signed it and it doesn't ever bother to say well wait a minute uh that language is obviously encompassing the product in question that really should be the end of the conversation. Yeah. And I, um, I always thought there was the fact that Justice Scalia didn't feel any need to explain himself in that was a kind of odd betrayal of textualism, right? That, you know, the implication seemed to be well, we can't just let the FDA assert jurisdiction yes. over tobacco because that would be ridiculous. Um, and so you kind of have this embarrassed silence on the textual breadth. And my question is, is, is the silence here embarrassed or is Gorsuch using the non-delegation doctrine as a way to relieve the embarrassment saying, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna avoid a non-delegation problem by interpreting this statute less broadly than it reads. So you're absolutely right to draw a parallel to FDA versus Brown and Williamson, um, but I think this one is worse. <laughs> I, mean, if, I mean, and Brown and Williamson also has a ton. O'Connor's opinion has a ton of legislative history. I like she's relying on hearing testimony rejected. Right, but Scalia doesn't and like Scalia legislative doesn't, no, history not a and doesn't whimper, as doesn't con likes to say. Doesn't right? concede. Doesn't concede its legitimacy. I have no problem with O'Connor's opinion yeah. in Brown and Williamson for O'Connor. Right. I do have a problem with it, except that I think it's wrong. I do have a problem with it for Scalia. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so, so this is not the first time that we have seen a textualist willing to abandon textualist, you know, plain meaning analysis and even embrace legislative history and other things they usually rail against in the service of limiting an agency's regulatory power, right? Or it's basically telling an agency you've gone too far. You're trying to you're trying to legislate to sort of the limits or beyond the limits of, of what we think is reasonable, right? And using this kind of major question idea, because that's one of the cases, the early cases um, that scholars sort of looked at and said, this is a version of the major questions doctrine or coined the phrase, the major question doctrine to, to talk about. But I think this opinion is worse because in that one, you, I think it is a little bit of an embarrassed <laughs> opinion, right? He's not, and Scalia isn't writing, like, right? I mean, it's bad enough that he's not Saying he's not writing separately and that he's going along with what O'Connor is doing because he, in other opinions, tends to, you know, dissent from a footnote that mentions legislative history. So it's hypocritical. But he's not the one writing it, right? So Gorsuch writes this concurrence and there's nothing textual in it. And there's a whole heck of a lot of legislative intent and history and other types of, you know, gesturing towards uh, what Congress meant um, of the kind that he usually criticizes, right, to try to prove his point. So, and there's no embarrassment. <laughs> like the, there's no embarrassment in the procurium or the concurring opinion. There's no acknowledgement that the text might otherwise um, be clear enough to to cover this, but for whatever reasons we, we think otherwise. There's no even attempt, right, to offer dictionary definitions or close textual parsing of these words that are in the emergency provision that I read you, like uh, 
substances or agents or physically harmful or new hazards. I mean, they could have at least ventured an argument that would suggest but it's, that it's hard to see how the it term is new hazard would not cover yep. a novel coronavirus, novel being roughly synonymous with new yeah. and virus being certainly encompassed <laughs> under the word hazard. Right. Instead, they just sort of, I mean, they just sort of offer us this, like, I, repeated references to occupational and work-related, and they italicize those words, right? So that you're, I think the implication is supposed to be, and they sort of say it a little bit, that um, that the only hazards OSHA was supposed to be allowed to regulate are those that are directly work-regulated, which is totally belied both by the definition of occupational that's in the statute, which was in the briefing and didn't show up in the dissent, um, but that some labor law lawyers have pointed out. So it doesn't work because of the statute's own definition of occupation, and it doesn't work because the his of the history of OSHA regulations that have been upheld that includes things that are hazards both within the workplace and outside the workplace, like asbestos, like benzene, like tractor injuries, right? Um, so uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I, what's, what's alarming about this opinion is it much more has the feel of we, this is the direction we're going in now and we have the votes and, and you know, who cares about methodology and we don't even have to pretend that we care about methodology. Okay, so, so, so second how, question and then I will yield to my colleagues. How much of this is really about the non-delegation doctrine? That is, mm -hmm. that really what Gorsuch is saying here when you, when you strip a bunch of, you know, the, the, the terminology away is he's saying, hey, if OSHA is allowed to just say novel coronavirus can get you sick in the workplace, so we're, uh, we're creating a new rule that's really a legislative act, uh, I, and rather than rather than you know uh, saying 1937 too many times in a single opinion, uh, I'm just gonna say uh, I'm I'm just gonna defy the the uh, originalist methodology and read the statute much more narrowly than it reads to avoid the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that's definitely lurking in the background, right? Um, and I, part of a, there's so many things that bother me about this opinion, but one of the things that bothers me about the opinion is that it's sort of, it stops short of really engaging the non-delegation doctor. Like if that's doing the work, it clearly seems to be doing a lot of the work because they talk about what a sweeping rule this is and how it's going to affect so many people and how it's a permanent thing like you can't unget the vaccine if you have to get it um, because of the social regulation uh, it's not something you can undo and so forth um, but if they want to go that route i would rather the court and it gets more intellectually honest to go that route right to say the statute clearly allows this right and and we think that that uh is too much uh, of a delegation of legislative power, power that's legislative to the agency. And then they would have to grapple with things like, you know, does the intelligible principles doctrine still survive? Gorsuch has suggested no in his Gundy concurrence, right? And and he wants to return to sort of pre-1935 um, approaches to the non-delegation doctrine where 
the only things that Congress can delegate to the agency is the power to fact find, right? To, to If you find X fact, you can do this, or if you don't find X fact, you can do this, or to sort of fill up the details, like a narrower power to delegate. So then he should engage those things, I think. And, and of course, he doesn't want to do that. Like They're going to say now in 2021, two, you know, 2022, after 52 years of OSHA being in effect, that this is unconstitutional, right? They don't want to do that, right? So I just find that so late, intellectually lazy and kind of slow sloppy to be like, to throw it in there in, in the back end as an extra reason, right? Major questions is doing the work, but if we were to find that it, uh, that if Congress had actually authorized OSHA to do this, it would be unconstitutional too, but never mind, we're not going to give you that analysis. Um, you know, like, it's just another reason to, to cringe at this opinion. There you go. Oh, sorry, I was unmuting you, Genevieve, and you were unmuted yourself at the same time. <laughs> it happens. I One of my quick questions is how, while it's intellectually dishonest in terms of the argument in general, constitutional theory and analysis, is it really that surprising considering Gorsuch's history as a jurist yeah. and his antipathy almost blatant dis dislike of Chevron doctrine and administrative law. So what should we be watchful for? Because I can't imagine that others, even in the conservative block, feel exactly that way. A lot of them kind of share more of a Justice Scalia perspective where he was pretty deferential Chevron doctrine to the administrative state. Um, so I'm just sure. Um, so thoughts. it's not surprising, right, at all. I mean, I think course, which is pretty hostile to the administrative state. I think President Trump sort of openly looked for judges, right, to point to the Supreme Court who were pretty hostile to the administrative state and who really questioned its constitutional validity. Uh, and I see, I think we're seeing the consequences of that. On the Chevron question, it's interesting. So ma the major questions doctrine sort of comes in that sphere, right? When the first few cases where the court started talking about it, MCI in the 90s and then FDM versus Brown and Williamson in 2000 uh, were some of the early cases. What that allowed the court to do in those cases was to avoid Chevron deference, right? To say, even if this is a case, it allowed the court to do two things, to take statutes that were pretty broadly worded and seem to allow the agency to do what, what it did, um, at least under a Chevron regime, and to just say Chevron doesn't apply here, basically, right? Because this question, um, the subject matter on which the agency is regulated is so broad and of such vast political and economic significance that we are going to, we can't assume that Congress delegated the authority to the agency to fill in the gaps here, right? And that's what Chevron is based on. So if Congress didn't delegate that authority to the agency, then we don't use the Chevron doctrine, right? We, we decide ourselves that, that we can't, we're, that the presumption is that Congress didn't give the agency this authority. But it's in this opinion, I think, in this case, the court is even moving beyond that, right? And, and Gorsuch gives this detailed, lengthy discussion of uh, the major question doctrine that almost like weaves it into together with the uh, the non delegation doctrine. And so it's I think it's 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 moving in a different direction. And I think what's also interesting is you mentioned Justice Scalia. Scalia evolved. I think on administrative law questions, he was very much a proponent of Chevron for a while, but towards the end of his life and his career, he started questioning Chevron and moving towards a more formalist argument that 
Chevron isn't authorized by the Administrative Procedure Act or its intention with the tech. He loved Chevron while yes. Republican administrations were I mean, that's, that's the truth. That's the cynical way of I mean, looking at it, it's also, There have been studies. believe the cynical. Like. Yeah, there been, I mean, I'm not a cynical person by nature, and I try to resist in statutory interpretation the partisan ideological view of most cases. And I mostly am able to do that, and I think that does describe most statutory interpretation cases. But then in the high stakes cases, it's very hard to avoid that conclusion. And and the, when the court totally avoids the textual, you know, the, even the attempt at a textual analysis in a case like this, I think there's reason uh, to, to believe that, it, that it's entirely partisan. And there have been studies done of both at the Supreme Court and the Federal Court of Appeals level, I think, that showed that um, yeah, voting on in terms of agency deference is very ideological, that Republican appointed justices and judges tend to defer to agency interpretations under Republican presidents and not under Democratic presidents and vice versa. So, um, yeah, you're not wrong, Ben. Scott, go for it. Um, okay, thanks. I think I agree with everything you say, except for one thing I don't understand is what is OSHA? What is OSHA? That, that, yeah, that was a joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, OSHA, Scott, are these big bodies of water that are yeah, between the continents? It's the plural for oceans. So, two questions. So, one is, what is what? What's with the per per curium? business. Can you explain that? Like the the first of all, like the court's doing this a lot and like why did it do it here when you had like three concurrences, three dissents? Yeah, I don't know why they did a per curiam. Um I, I don't have a great explanation for that. I mean I think we it's probably fair to speculate that it wasn't written by you know, Alito Gorsuch or Thomas, and it was probably written by Roberts or Kavanaugh, um, but I'm not sure why they did it as a procurium. Okay, okay, that's just... Um, yeah, sorry, I don't have a good answer to that. No, sorry. <laughs> I but I want to I answer, like, I don't get the whole, the whole strategy. So I get the strategy, which is, like, you don't like the administrative state, you're going mm -hmm. to cut back in all these different ways um, uh, uh, through non-delegation, through major questions. Like, they're just doing it in all these forms. But, I mean, this is my question to you, which is, because uh, at least to me, it feels like trying to, like, sweep back the ocean, um, if that's the expression. Like, it's just like... You know, the the agencies are going to produce... I, I think you mean sweep back the ocean. No, the singular, the singular ocean is the Oshai. I think it's Oshas, but because uh, it's um, male. But, um, but um, yeah, no, um, it, 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 like, so you can, it works like on these culture war big ticket type things like vaccine mandates or something like that. But um, like for the general, you know, regulatory landscape, you know, uh, regulation uh, uh, printer go burr. I mean, it, does, that, does, it, does it feel to you like 
that this is not, you can't really rein in the administrative state at this point. Um, so this is why Ben's comment is important and what's one of the things that's really frustrating about this. Yeah, we're not gonna completely eliminate the administrative state. What it lets them do though, if they're able to use things like the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine to sort of cut off the power of the agency to regulate um, in certain areas or in certain you know, an ad hoc basis to decide that that went too far is it gives the court more power, right? It enlarges the discretion of judges because the major questions doctrine is substance is policy based. You're deciding based on the specific policy yeah. and the specific thing that yeah. the, the agency is doing, right? So when they like the regulation, like when it's from a conservative president, they can say, Oh, this isn't a big, too big of a question. No, 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 no. So I, I, all I mean to say is that when you have, so the good thing about from your if from wherever you sit, enlarging discretion is good from the perspective of you getting to strike down the things that you don't like and upholding the things that you do. But on a kind of on at scale, um, discretion doesn't actually cut down regulation um, in the way in which um, you would want from a political point of view that was really anti-regulatory. So it, it, it yeah. seems like, I, it, fe it feels like whack-a-mole and it yes. just, um, that's what I mean to say. Yeah, it's, um, but it's a kind of nefarious whack-a-mole, right? It's not like we're just trying to cut the legs out of the administrative state every which way we can and as much as we can. It's, um, it's very, calculated and sort of policy-based. But yeah, you're right. They're not going to completely eliminate it, and nor do I think they want to entirely. But, but, uh, but there's some agencies they like less than others. So maybe, but, you know, maybe we'll see less deference to particular agencies. Well. I mean, I want to say in defense of the conservative project on administrative law more generally, leave aside it in the current moment, mm -hmm. Chevron was itself written by Scalia, a response... Well, written by, it's written by Stephen. But with majority. Scalia on it, right? He's part of the Chevron majority, I think. I don't think Is he was he? on the court. I don't think he was on the court. I don't think actually. he was on the court when Chevron was written. I don't think he was on the court yet. It's Stephen's opinion. I'm looking it up. It is. He was not in the court. I'll look it up, but go ahead. Um, I don't think he was on the court for a couple more years. But he... But, but Chevron is itself a response to the... Warren Court and Burger Court era's propensity to jump in and reinterpret statutes kind of over the agency's objections whenever they kind of felt like it, right? And so there's there's risk in the other direction as well. So I'm not sure about that. Like I actually think, you know, and Chevron, I mean, and I don't know the history as well as some folks have done their research on it, but I, I don't know that Chevron changed the rates of agency deference all that much. I think what it did was to provide more of a clear-cut test, which is why Scalia embraced it for so long, because he loves clarity and he loves doctrines that are, you know, do this, do that, and we know what to expect. Um, but I'm not sure. I think there's research out there that suggests that it didn't change the rates of deference to administrative agencies all that much, actually. Um, so. And, and there's research suggesting, you know, between 1984 and 2006, that the court didn't actually invoke Chevron, at least the Supreme Court didn't invoke Chevron in all the cases where it maybe could have, 
or should have, it used other deference regimes um, or just didn't mention a deference canon or, or regime. So I'm not sure that that's true. Okay. Um, so really quickly, and it might be slightly deck chairs on the Titanic, given how like much we've talked about kind of a lot of like very specific ad law and, and um, con law terms, but would you mind just giving us kind of, I mean, you of all people are just awesome at this, like giving us kind of a, an idea of the canons of statutory interpretation and like where textualism fits in and why textualism here is like, is it the crux of kind of like, I don't know, Gorsuch's canard, so to speak, like why this is like, why this is the thing that he's kind of manipulating to, um, to make his case uh, to the people that he's trying and the audience that he's basically shooting for by using textualism. Okay, um, so first statutory interpretation 101, right? So the canons, um, I when a lot of people like to think of the different canons or tools of statutory interpretation that are out there as falling into three buckets. So one would be sort of the textual canons and tools bucket, which involves things like just looking at the four corners of the statutory text, the terms that are in the statute, closely parsing that, figuring out what the ordinary meaning or plain meaning of the words is, um, maybe looking at them up in the dictionary to support what you think the ordinary meaning is, uh, also entails a bunch of sort of logic, grammar-based, structure-based arguments where you might look at how the sentence is structured, grammar rules, you know, about commas, and uh, last antecedent and verbs and, and what tenses they're in it, et cetera, uh, as well as some Latin canons that are really um, logical inferences, like if the statute specifies X, Y, Z uh, items and, and leaves out ABC, then the presumption is that ABC were intentionally left out. Um, looking at one the part of the statute that's an issue in light of other parts of the statute, right? If it's, there's differences in language between two very similar provisions, then, Does it include looking at the legislative history? No, no, not at all. So, it's, okay. these, so that's what I'm. So these textual canons are all focused on the four corners of the statutory text. Then the second bucket is sort of a bunch of extrinsic or reference canons that involve going outside the four corners of the statute to things that other institutions have said that might impact or inform the meaning of the statute. So that includes legislative history, right? Because it's written materials created by Congress. Right? It's not just loosey goosey, right? It's it's something that another institution has said about what the words in the statute mean. Common law, right? So what have earlier courts said? Is there like a common law definition of the word that's used in the statute? And should we presume that Congress incorporated those common law meanings into the statute? Other statutes, so there are other federal statutes that use the same or similar phrases. And especially if they're on the same subject area, so another criminal statute, if you're looking at a criminal statute, although I've written about this the court, you know, a non-trivial percentage of the time goes to other statutes that have no, no, no you know, subject matter relatedness to the statute at issue. Um, but figuring out, okay, in another context, the court said because of means proximate cause, right, but for causation. So that's the rule across all statutes, things like that. Um, and then the last category are substantive canons, which are policy-based canons that the courts have come up with themselves, right? So they're not tethered to other written things created by other institutions, like the extrinsic canons. They're not based on the four corners of the text. They're based on you know, principles of American law that come maybe from the constitution, maybe from common law, maybe from our Anglo-American tradition, but they're very- Blackstone. So. Yeah, Blackstone. <laughs> Blackstone can also, you know, feed into the common law, but- um, But yes, yes no, often, I, from, I, I yeah, just... often from, you know, sometimes property law, right? The court will cite 
common law rules about easements to help it figure out the meaning of a statute that, and how it applies with respect sure. to easement in a particular case. So the major questions doctrine is very much a substantive canon, right? Because it's it's putting the thumb on the scales in favor of sort of one outcome or the other, deference to the agency or non-deference to the agency, based on this background norm idea of we can't have too much delegation to, to, to Congress. Um, okay, so we, your larger question was, where does textualism fit into all this? So textualists are very focused on and happy with the textual canon, all of the tools that fall in that bucket. They're also happy with pretty much everything in the extrinsic source bucket, the things that go outside the four corners of the text, except legislative right? And they're also very happy with substantive canons, which are like made off the top of the head by judges, right? So the only thing they really object to is legislative history. And you might ask why, and you know, everybody has their theories about this, but I think a part of this is, um, you know, very logical, makes a lot of sense. I think Justice Scalia and some other textualists were reacting to the way the Warren and Berger courts did statutory interpretation in the era of the 60s and the 70s, which was sort of all over the place, right? Legislative history was kind of a free-for-all. They were just finding you know, whatever they could in there that might sort of support what they, the outcome that they wanted to reach, you know, arguably, right? Um, there's very loose sort of purposive analysis. There isn't careful use of legislative history. There's, you know, it just looks like sort of making stuff up. Uh, it's a little too loose. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that we should return to that era. Like, I think Justice Scalia was right that we should focus on the text more. And I think he did a good thing for uh, statutory interpretation by focusing people more on the text and focusing people on the dangers of misuses of legislative history. I just think he went too far in wanting to chop it all off entirely. Um, and it's just very curious when you study this stuff, how textualists are willing to look at everything else, including these other extrinsic sources, right? Including substantive policy-based canons that judges made up, right? Um, but but no to legislative history. It's, it's sort of a basically cutting Congress out of it, right? Anything that Congress said about what the statute meant, we don't want to look at it. But, and I think it's just, it's a product of its time and that, it, that textualism came up in reaction to the purposivism that was used in a very ideological way in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think there's no reason that textualism has to be, if you're really following it, ideologically conservative or produce conservative outcomes, right? And that's where I think we're running into, into problems now, right? As the court has become more and more textualist, there's a movement of progressive textualists, right? Who are looking at these older statutes like the OSH Act, like Title VII, like the ADA, and saying, you know, we can make arguments that are purely textualist for why this statute covers the things we want them to cover, right? And that's the real, where the rubber meets the road for are you really a textualist or are you, are you a conservative who's using textualism? to promote your ends. And I think we're seeing the latter. In, in All right, so like, I, I like want to defend Gorsuch a little bit on this front, because it seems to me that in two very major cases over the last few years, mm -hmm. he has actually lived textualism at the expense of where all the other conservative justices are. Uh, one of them, of course, is Boston. the application, uh, yes, the application of non-discrimination law to not merely to uh, 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 gays and lesbians, but to trans people as well, based uh, on, which is not somewhere that the rest of the conservatives were willing to go. Well, Roberts, Roberts surprised Roberts, was, Roberts was willing to go there, yeah. Um, uh, but it is something that the uh, uh, 
advocates were able to frame in a explicitly textualist mm -hmm. fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gorsuch was willing to go toe to toe with Kavanaugh and Alito over it, uh, coming to a quite liberal outcome in a hot button, uh, hot button uh, culture war issue uh, uh, in the name of his uh, ideology. The other example that I think is in some ways even more striking is McGirt, which we have discussed on this show, uh, not in a textualist context, but again, here Gorsuch sides with the liberals uh, and turns over half of the, literally half of the state of Oklahoma to the tribes um, because of a, uh, because of his understanding of the, you know, the absence of an explicit uh, congressional uh, re revocation of, of, of tribal sovereignty. And so when you see him being true to the ideology in cases as high stakes and substantial as that, and yet as flamboyantly untrue to it as you're describing him mm -hmm. being with respect to OSHA, yeah. it seems to me there's three possible conclusions from this. And I'm curious which one seems to you like the reality or whether it's something else entirely. One is um, he's a genuine, sincere textualist, but he's a flawed human being. And like, like all human beings are flawed, and sometimes, like all of us, his knees jerk, and when his knees jerk and he betrays his, uh, his or fails in his ideological, uh, philosophical convictions, they jerk to the right. So in two of these three cases, he's true to himself. In one case, he's not, and you get the, the conservative result. Second possibility is he's actually uh, an ideological prostitute. Uh, like a lot of people in the Greek chorus are saying in the chat, and he just cares more about administrative law mm -hmm. than he does about anti-discrimination law or about um, or about the tribes. And by the way, he's from Colorado, and he has a certain clearly has a certain sympathy with the tribes. So maybe that's actually an example of him being. Uh, it, you know, him getting the result that he wants using textualism. And then the third possibility is the N is too small to make any judgments here. Um, you really have to look at somebody's commitment to these things over the scope of their career. And really one OSHA case in a non-precedential uh, non context is an area where you would kind of expect somebody to fall down. It's a hot button issue. It's there on the shadow docket. And so we just shouldn't read too much into it one way or the other. What do you think? How, how important is this failure of textualism and where does it fit into a larger career pattern on his part? So I think that's a little bit of one and two um, of what you said. Um, I mean, and, and I, some of this is just guessing and we have, we have to see things play out and I can never know the answer unless I've got inside Gorsuch's head. But I, I, I would suspect it's a little bit of the first and second thing that you said. So I mentioned before that I tend to resist the partisan and ideological explanation for most cases. And I think in statutory interpretation, that is true across the board, right? So I, I've been 
documenting and studying empirically the Roberts Court statutory cases since 2006. I have something like over 600 cases in my data set. Um, and almost half of those statutory cases are unanimous at the Supreme Court level. So that means even though there were often circuit splits right squared together. So almost half of those cases are unanimous. There are a lot of cases that are about things like ERISA and FILA and you know, just a bunch of statutes that are not politically high stakes, that are not um, salient or visible. And I think the court has an easier time, all of the justices sort of um, coming to the same interpretation, right, in a, in a lot of those cases. Um, and even when they disagree, there's sort of interesting fault lines and interesting bedfellows. As, as I think a lot of people know, Scalia was big on the rule of lenity, even though he's not pro-defendants generally, right? So uh, that's one of the things that I like about statutory interpretation. I'm pretty sort of, I think, uh, you know, if you were to do a psychological breakdown of me, like I like clear rules too, you know, and I think textualism appeals to me in a number of ways. I just don't find it to be determinate the way that, that textualists claim it is in a lot of cases. And I see a lot of sort of funny business when you claim that it is. So so part of my project has been to put on the table the discretion that exists in a lot of these textual tools and to try to push for maybe meta rules or um, things that the court could adopt so that it would be more constraining than it is in the way it's practiced. Um, so, so that's all a roundabout way of saying, I think it's possible that there are some cases in which the judges care more that Gorsuch might care more, and I might suggest that McGirt and uh, and the Bostic case might be cases. I don't know, but they might be cases where he was also ideologically okay with the outcome, right? And and or more okay with the outcome than maybe he is in other cases. I think administrative law is one of his sort of that his sort of like pet projects. And um, I think there's this, you mentioned you have the strict scrutiny shirt on. So I'll say I, I listened to the episode recently, and I think you know they were joking that he's right I, I need I need to make a statement about about the administrative law case um, so that could be part of the explanation the other thing is I think in Bostick and I know the Bostick opinion better um, more inside and out than McGirt so I'll talk about that one there's a lot going on in that opinion it's not just text right Gorsuch is relying pretty heavily on precedent and I joined one of the briefs that argued that based on a purely textual analysis of the scholars briefs um, that a purely textual analysis required the outcome that the court ultimately reached. But I actually also think it's text plus precedent that makes it a slam dunk because there's just a series of cases where they held that Title VII covers things like gender nonconformity, right? So once you get that, it's pretty hard not to to, to say that it doesn't extend uh, to, to uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So um, so yeah, I guess those are a couple of thoughts I have on it. And I, yeah, I think I think if we, in terms of looking forward, what we should expect from Dorsich, I think he is a committed textualist. I think he is not just signing on to textualism because he wants to reach conservative outcomes. And I think you know there are going to be cases where he is willing to reach the more liberal outcome. But I also suspect that when something hits really close to home, he's going to have our time. And maybe all of us are like that. We're all human. Like I don't think it's possible to interpret a statute. With you know, completely separating out your separating sort of, everything about your humanity. Yeah, yeah I mean, yes, this is yeah, this yeah. is. I mean, in a way, this is like, in a way, this is kind of like also a commentary on the objective reasonable man and like the objective yeah, person analysis possible. and everything else. Like, there is no such thing, and never do we. Yeah. So no, I totally I, agree. I just want to before we go to audience questions, I just want to like foot stomp that point a little bit. Um, I actually think Gorsuch is a sincere textualist, and okay. I think he is not a prostitute. 
um, for conservatism. Um, I think uh, he is a conservative, however, and I think the, one of the reasons that I agree with you that his uh, performance in the OSHA case is so disappointing is that it is not, is that, is that when similar conflicts between his apparent ideology and his textualism have arisen before, he has been kind of admirable about saying, well, I guess, you know, I guess you got to return Oklahoma to the tribes. And I, I, I guess uh, because of sex uh, has to include trans people. And, you know, and I, and I think he's been actually relatively courageous in that regard and just kind of shrugging and going going where textualism leads him. I'm not myself a textualist, but, um, and so I think that makes it very striking when he doesn't do it in a very glaring way like this one. Mm -hmm. But I actually, I would, I, I would kind of defend him in general as like, like, you know, somebody who kind of puts his money where his mouth is on that, even when it, at times leads him to sort of absurdities. Yeah, he's not Justice Alito or Justice Thomas who are always going to reach the result that they want, right? And we're going to be in, and Alito in particular, I think, is just all over the map in his methodology. Um, so I, I agree with that. And but sort of on this point, like, uh, like you know, Kate was saying, that there's, there isn't, uh, it's not possible to be completely objective. And I think part of, a lot of the work that I've done and sort of the underlying or the bottom line of it has been, all of these methodologies are, are none of these methodologies, all of these methodologies are going to allow judges to continue to uh, decide cases in part based on their, their preferences, right? And we all bring our own pragmatic biases to the, even the reading of the text. That's why different people get different ordinary meanings and plain meanings, right? So the best thing to do is to try to sort of cabin our own um, our own policy preferences or to check our own policy preferences and our own, the own the pragmatic experiences that all of us bring to the reading of a text. And that's why at the end of the day, I'm not a pure textualist, right? I would say, let's start with the text, but we should look at everything else to sort of, and look at it with the eye of trying to disconfirm our first gut reaction, right? Knowing that we all do this. And to the extent that you can do that, I think that's the best approach for all of us to take and to recognize that we're not going to completely eliminate this, but it really bothers me when people say, well, this methodology is going to eliminate it more than this methodology, because I just don't see that. No, I think that, yeah, that piece of it is 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 anti-intellectual and dishonest in like a way mm -hmm. that is unhelpful, and I agree with you completely. Um, but we have, we have to go to, I'm hoping to get into audience questions because there are so many that are excellent, but Michael McKenna, the floor is yours, friend. Thank you for being so patient. Oh, no problem. Hi. Uh, my question is, uh, Justice Gorsuch has previously ruled that leaving a broken truck in a blizzard to save your life is a fireable offense. Does he think employees have any safety-related rights at all? <laughs> oh, that's like a really... Not, not a loaded question yeah, there, yeah, even I, a little bit. I liked the loaded question. I wanted, I thought that like, I thought that this would like rise to Anita's point. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he does. I mean, like I could get inside his head, but I find that to be a crazy interpretation, right? I mean, that's that's insane. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe he's going to go all the way down with that, right? But, but, uh, 
And maybe that's an example of him sticking to what he thinks this text clearly demands, even though it's an absurd result. Uh, Richard Wattenberger, the floor is All yours. All bundled up. Is your yeah. heater out? Yeah, I know. You've got me nervous that like your heat's not working or something, Richard. Well, I'm in the coldest room in the house, and it's cold here in Philly today. So, um, so I, um, we know that, and uh, Anita, and you've pointed out that uh, there are cases in which textualists aren't able to maintain their textualism consistently. And uh, so I was curious really about over the longer term, do you have a sense of what Gorsuch's history has been on this? I know we've touched on this some of the, uh, some in part. And is it likely, uh, do you think, or uh, you know, how likely or plausible is it that conservative justices might end up um, eventually um, torpedoing textualism, not, um, not because they aren't professing to be it, but people around are going to see, wait a minute, this seems to be a bankrupt uh, uh, way of going about things. So that's a great question. I'm going to start with your second question, your larger plan question. Um, I have actually been thinking lately that I could see, I mean, it's like we're in cycles of statutory interpretation, right? Like in everything else, I think you know, Scalia and, and others who were, who were promoting textualism in the 80s and 90s and, and last 20 years, we're reacting, as I said, I think, to the sort of overemphasis and loosey-goosey use of purpose and, and legislative history in the 70s. But I think we're coming to a point where text, and, and it was good that they pointed out the abuses of legislative history and purpose and focused everyone on the text again. But now I think we're coming sort of down the mountain right on the other side where we're going a little too far. And, and uh, I've been thinking lately that what kills textualism possibly could be this sort of progressive textualist movement, right? That's sort of exemplified by the Bostock case. Um, and now you've got six out of nine of the justices who are textualists, but more conservative first, I think, at least, at least some of them are. Um, and so, uh, you know, I could see textualism actually dying out because can, of can, that. Can, can, yeah, well, can I, can I, can I say the, I mean, there's the, uh, there's the, alternative explanation as to obviously why textualism is going to die out because once you've captured the judiciary you don't need it anymore um that's the um yeah i mean this is the this is in some sense the point i mean almost that adrian vermule is like openly um authoritarian uh, about <laughs> openly uh, celebrating yes 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 we had it's to the, say i've got the power principle. yeah yeah right. i mean that's what this opinion reads like right the yeah. Opinion, yeah so 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 then so then it'd be like yeah you're right you know all those philosophical arguments that many have been saying over the last like 70 years about textualism it turns out that um they were right and really what we really should be focusing on is the common good um and this is the and this is the like the return to um you know like the war in court except um the bizarro war in court you know um, i still would love to have adrian on the show i i uh i think uh, <laughs> no, I think we need to. I, I'm going to re in, uh, reinvite him. Say yes, in my experience. No, he, 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 he lock you, Ben. He doesn't. He really doesn't like me. Um, yeah. 
Uh, so that sounds uh, fun. I guess Let's I'm invite people that something. hate us onto the show. Um, but I, well, like, I was going to say, I mean, so I've been trying to get Charles T to come on and ask this question, but um, I'm actually going to broaden it. So he wants to know if you think what you think the future of OSHA is after this. But I think the far more kind of pertinent question is like, not really specific to OSHA at all, but the administrative state. And so I'm, I'm curious what your what your thoughts are. If this is, as Scott says, kind of like the end, like the, the last gasp in a way of textualism as it kind of, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, captured or like as like it captures the like the judiciary and then like it dies out as a pretext. pretext right. I don't know. Like, what do you think? What do you think the... Uh, I mean, or is it just going to make the administrative state even more politicized than it already is? As you kind of said, with like Scalia, that this was kind of like that there was writing on the wall for this far before it was captured by the judiciary right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the future of the administrative state, uh, I think I think this is a worrisome opinion. Right. Um, and it's not it's not the only one. This has been coming for a while, but I think it's sort of the way it's written and the emphasis on the major questions doctrine and wrapping it in with non-delegation. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if within the next, pretty soon, like next year or two, we see the non-delegation doctrine being revived more openly. Um, and I think that is going to lead to a lot of narrow reading of, of the authorizing statutes and the scope of authority that agencies have, especially when it's agencies that um, the court doesn't like, right, and regulations that the court doesn't like, but across the board, it, it's a doctrine that, and it's been coming on for a while, right? Like the major questions doctrine is, is a couple decades at least old, um, but it's a doctrine that allows the court to ignore the text of the statute, right, and to just say based on a policy evaluation that this question is too big to to parse the statute closely or to assume deference to the agency. So I think um, we're going to see a real shrinking of the can statement. I ask if there's been the death of other doctrines that I've like, I'm, this is not my area in other, it was there yeah. like a McCarthy doctrine that was like, are you a communist or aren't you a communist? Like the end of the, like, like I don't know, was there like, what were the other, like, were there other doctrines that have died? I mean, other like, canons or? Canons, yes. Yeah. Um. So Aaron Brule has, has tried to write about this and he writes about the jurisdiction canon. Um, he's sort of a civ pro person, so it's kind of connected to that. And I can't remember in detail what he says, but he's been trying to look into this. I can't think of anything that's really huge. I mean, there are canons like that remedial statute should be construed liberally that no one has cited you know, in the Rehnquist or Roberts court you know, so for a pretty long time. Um, so canons do come in and out of favor, I, I think. But this is, this is kind of a bigger deal um, because it goes to the heart of the administrative state. Um, and then I think you asked another question in there, Kate, that I forgot it. No, I don't think so. That was like, that was kind of, I was just was like, is there, it, well, basically my, my question was like, if the text as like kind of Scott is suggesting that there's maybe this is the last, but this is kind of the end of this doctrine, like how to, or a canon, like how does it die? Like basically was my question. I think how does, how, what does it actually look like? Um, and, you know, does it lurk forever? Is it taken up by like, you know, some like 1L or 2L at Yale Law School? No offense. No offense, Scott. Um, <laughs> and like they like they, you know, they decide that they're going to rewrite, they're going to revive the textualism doctrine like 25 years from now. Like, 
I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, I think things are gonna they're gonna die by disuse, and there'll be no fanfare and no um, no calling attention to it largely, unless you know an academic writes a law review article that nobody reads um, about it. So, and then that makes it possible, right, for someone to revive it. I mean, when I took administrative law twenty some years ago, and uh, everyone was saying the non-delegation doctrine was dead. When I started teaching it in 2011, we were still saying the non-delegation doctrine is dead. Um, it is not dead, right, anymore. So, you know, you know, I think things can come back, especially since there isn't typically a opinion overruling it. And even if there is, there's Schechter, you know, there's UCAS, right, overruling Schechter poultry, um, and yet still the non-delegation doctrine is back. So I mean, I just taught it in, in my class yesterday and we were looking at cases where the court is just talking about how all these times the court has upheld really sweeping delegations and um and there's an opinion that we teach where justice you know that fcc authorizing statute that says the fcc can issue any regulation that's in the yeah, public I mean, interest I mean, it's, it's a pretty, the I mean, Federal Communications Act is no joke in yeah, the scope we, of this. And we, like, the casebooks still have like a couple of cases in there that have like a dissent from Justice Rehnquist where he would have struck something down based on the non delegation doctrine or Scalia would have. And, you know, they're in there sort of to say, look at this, this is a 7 1 opinion or an 8 1 opinion. This is like a minority viewpoint that's just a little you know, effort to revive the doctrine that nobody else is willing to go along with. So that that's the history of this, right? So I think, you know, anything can be revived. Yeah, I, 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 whenever I think of that, I think, yes, we can, um, so. Great, like Rosie the Riveter? <laughs> totally. <laughs> No, like somebody else. says the angry feminist podcast. Sorry, <laughs> you go straight. You know, he makes a he makes a, a a Barack Obama joke, and you go straight to the to the Rosie the Riveter. Wait, your first generation, yeah, first generation feminist kind of joke. Yes, I agree. Uh, Scott, great reference. <laughs> um, Anita, this is awesome. Thanks for this coming on the show. And, You're a great uh, American. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very nice much. And um, you tell your well. daughter it was lovely to have the background music uh, play. I'm a little sad she can't play you out right now, but that's, yeah. you know. She, her, her lesson ended a little while ago. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. Yeah. Um, well, it was great to see you. And um, everyone, we will be back on Monday, but feel free to stay local on In Lua Fun and the Crowdcast to kind of talk about Chris. And, um, we're going to dismiss Anita and close the YouTube um, channel. But Anita, this is great. Thank you so much. It was great to hang out with you. Um, and we'll talk you, soon. Guys. Bye, friends. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.